Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Britt Hartley, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Bill? Excellent. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Almost Awaken podcast. And uh, how's your week going? It's been a good week. I have to good. say I this week you had, you know, for the people who listen to this podcast, who follow you on other platforms, I just really have to say like I there are many versions of Bill Real. There are many sides and shades to Bill Real. But the one that I get to see on this podcast is one of my favorites cuz man, this week I felt like, you know, there was some critics, there was some drama, you kind of you get your sword dirty out there in the world. But then in this podcast, like last week, you were really tender and vulnerable talking about your mother. And there's this like wisdom soft side that comes out on this podcast. And then you're back at it on the front line. So yeah, I love this. side. That's of interesting. Bill. I love all the sides, but I love this side of Bill too. <laughs> I like the I like this side best as well, by the way. And it really comes down to if somebody is out there because because I'm a public persona and because I'm trying to shine a light on an unhealthy system and willing to kind of do the dirty work to be at the front lines to do that, there are certain folks who see it as reasonable to come after me personally. And um, anytime somebody comes after me personally, wishing to do some sort of intentional or unnecessary harm, then my eight on the Enneagram comes out, right? Like I'm not going to let people do that to others. And I'm not gonna let people do that to me. And uh, I'm a little more feisty that way. But in this space, what I'm trying to do is a completely different audience, which are folks who are deconstructing, they're hurting, they're trying to figure out how to make sense of the world. And they really deserve the tenderest, most compassionate approach possible. And uh, maybe I should be Buddhist all the time. Probably should. I don't think so. I think it's. I think it's fair. You know, there are there are times that pull out different parts of you. You know, yeah. the people who are attacking you, like really, really going after you and your family and your intelligence and all kinds of things, maybe aren't worthy of hearing your story about how you feel about your mother. You know, like that's yeah. fair to say. That's a yeah. fair thing to say. I just wish that everybody who followed you on some of the other platforms got to see you in this space too, because I do love the conversations that we've, we've had. And just FYI, I, I know for sure because of the things that have been said in the past that they also watch me here. Right. So they are also <laughs> hearing me talk about my mother and other things, um, you know, sexuality and the, mm. the making jokes about how I try to make it safe for people to have access to the touch that isn't really available in our society anymore. Um, so that kind of thing happens as well, but well, some of that's going to come out today, I think. So we'll have a good conversation. Yeah. I feel like this conversation is one that would have really benefited us like earlier on in our faith journey. Yeah. Um, and I'm really excited for what we're going to talk about today. I do have one audience question that I got this week and I just want to 
people to know that when they email us, like I'm happy to share the question and talk about it. So if you have a question for me or Bill, feel free to email us. Um, and the audience question this week before we go into kind of what we're going to talk about today was, you know, Bill and Britt, I hear you guys talking about how we still need structure. We still need some of the things that religion gave us, but we just, you know, we don't need the dogma. We don't need this and that. Why didn't you both go to uh, Unitarian Universalism, you, you, because they try to do that. You're not required to believe anything, but still have, you know, a kind of church and a religious community. And um, it's a good question. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, my first thought is I just haven't really explored them enough to, to know much about them. Um, my second thought is that I still see them as attached to, even though they are super liberal, not really going to hold anybody to having to believe anything and likely could care less whether you are Christian or not. As far as I know, they're still aligned as a system within the Christian religion. And I think that whatever system comes forth, it, it needs to maybe start a different way. Like it can maybe be just as liberal and maybe the boundaries would be just as good, but that it needs to come from a place that it starts off on the beginning saying it's not tied to any of these religions, that it is simply a, um, it, it like is a, a new, human project, like a yeah. human project versus like, yeah. The, the trouble is, I, I the reason I pause is because I want to put some boundary on it, and yeah. any boundary is going to be inappropriate. Um, it really, whatever system it is, it needs to do what John Ogden's doing, which is teach people um, be, mechanisms, behaviors, responses, um, characteristics, traits, uh, human ways to interact that are healthy without putting it in any box of any system. And so that's why I think it's difficult to do. And it's the reason why, uh, as I deconstructed Christianity, I just stayed away from all the liberal forms of Christianity because I, I didn't want to limit myself to that box. Yeah. My response is a little bit different. I checked them out a little bit. There's a pretty strong branch here in Boise and a really lovely, um, female pastor who, um, I've actually asked to be on the podcast before. She's a little bit busy with her PhD or something right now. But, um, and my response is sometimes we find on the opposite side of the theological spectrum, so the liberal side, is an opposite set of problems. So rather than being too dogmatic, sometimes UU gets stuck in this place where because they have to be a big enough tent for everybody, they end up kind of saying nothing. And it's just kind of not a nothing burger. <laughs> and so right now, for example, they're really um, trying to figure out how they feel about polyamorous unions. Uh, because on the one hand, they want to be totally LGBTQ friendly. But then on the other hand, there are some of these, um, you know, maybe larger polyamorous groups or sexual behaviors that at least cause pause, like what would it be like to society if we were to restructure relationships in this way? And because they just don't have any direction or statements or, I don't know, they just can't even make any decisions at all. 
And so you get the opposite problem, which is there's just not enough to keep these people together. If the club is everyone and everyone's beliefs and anyone can say anything and anyone can believe anything and everybody's relationships can be anything, well, then it's not really, you know, a structure. It's not really, anyway, you get the opposite side of the problem. And we find this a lot with like liberal political groups that they just implode over time. We get this a lot with liberal, even theological groups. And so it can just be really hard to say what you're about when you want to be about everything. I yeah, I, I, I've got a lot to say. That, that would be an interesting episode to talk about the sorts of relationships that are out there, whether it be, you know, LGBT relationships or polyamorous relationships and what right do systems have to come in and impose boundaries on those when if if all those things are done consensually without um, pressure, religious pressure specifically, but without pressure, without with, in a healthy way. In other words, nobody is having harm imposed on them then why not or why should we limit those things and i think i've got a lot of thoughts on that but that would have to be another day yeah i think it would be helpful just because both you and i you know we haven't spent a lot of time in this community um to to get a podcast episode where we're talking to someone who's who is a part of the community or a pastor yeah. so that we make sure that we're saying things that are accurate but yeah for me it's just in my experience with UU and other churches like it that um, really try to do kind of the open door approach, sometimes it just ends up becoming you stand for then nothing because yeah. you're trying to do too much. And that's kind of the problem on the liberal side of anything. Yeah. Anyway, so what we were going to talk about this week, though. So last week I talked about how I was in the hospital with my daughter and I'm just so surprised that I'm still just surrounded by God and religion. I have the chaplain. I have the Bible at the hospital. I have the chapel at the hospital. I have hundreds of people praying for me and thanking God for what happened. And so I just kind of am sitting there in the hospital and I just have this thought of just like, how did we end up here? We're like, I am in a very scientific centered place, lots of science going on, trying to help my daughter. And I am still surrounded by God here. And um, it just kind of really got me thinking, how did we get here? And so I picked up a book when I had time in the hospital, you know, when my daughter was asleep. I picked up a book that had been on my shelf forever that you had already um, that you had already read, which was God by Reza Aslan. And I just really read it with this question of how did we come to imagine God so strongly that we literally built human societies around it? And so what I wanted to do today is, um, you know, we kind of jotted out six theories about how we got here. And at the end, I'm going to ask Bill and he's going to ask me and we'll ask you as the audience, like, which, what do you think? Like, what of these theories make sense to you as far as how we got here? Um, which I think is going to be a really fun conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it. This is a topic that I've spent a thousand hours on, um, whether it's, you know, Sapiens with Yuval Harari, God, which I re-listened to uh, this past week uh, by Riza Aslan, um, Civilized to Death, 
um, even in the kind of the sexual arena, sex at dawn and mating in captivity, uh, just really thought a lot about how we got from 200,000 years ago to today and why we humans do what we do and how we created the myths, systems and mechanisms that we have. Yeah, I wish it was something that I would have found earlier on. Um, because I just, you know, when you're, it's like that meme of like a fish telling a fish, you know, you're in water and it's like, what's yeah. water? Like I just, yeah. I just always thought there was a God because I just never heard any other explanation that explained how we're here without it. And so I just wish I would have found it early, earlier on, but uh, no time like the present to dive in. So yeah. this discussion really got going after Darwin because people started to think, if we can look at humanity based on what's going on evolutionarily, then we can figure out why believing in a supernatural gave humans an evolutionary advantage. And so once that discussion started, which is really after Darwin, so very recently in human history, have we even asked this question? There are kind of these six prevailing theories about why it made sense for us to believe in God and why generation after generation it sticks, right? So the first theory is just that we believe in God or a supernatural or religion to help us make sense of the unknown. So the theory here is that the source of religious impulse is our belief from in the soul and that that idea that we have a soul came from dreaming. And it like it was this interesting moment where I imagine like imagine you're a human 10,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, and you're dreaming. That must be such a without any understanding that this is something that the brain has to do and all this kind of stuff that really must feel like traveling to other worlds. Right. Like that must feel really supernatural yeah. to dream. I could see that, you know. Yeah. Um, yes. Like when you don't have explanations for things, it is natural for human beings as curious creatures to come up with explanations for things. And often dreams can be so real to the point where you wake up out of them and your regulatory system is responding to the dream. Um, you are still in the moment of, of awakenedness dealing with the ramifications of what was going on in that dream. Um, I used to dream often. And when I was dreaming, it was, it was something going on in the very environment of which I was. So if I was laying on my bed and looking a certain direction in my bedroom, my dreams were from that point of view. And so I'd open my eyes and nothing's different other than the thing that was there scaring the hell out of me two minutes ago, isn't in my peripheral vision anymore. Right. It's not there. And I'm trying to make sense of it. Like dreams are, crazy because they're so real yeah so there's this quote that says imagine adam and he uses the word adam and eve for like you know the the first humans imagine adam hold huddled in his mammoth fur finishing his meal by the light of a dying fire he falls asleep and in his dreams he travels to another world a world at once real and unfamiliar a world whose edges are soft says he says he runs into a dead relative in a dream a father or a sister how could he interpret their presence would he not simply assume that they weren't would he not simply assume that they weren't actually dead that they exist in another realm as true as this one would adam not conclude that the souls of the dead could exist 
as spirits long after the destruction of the body. They concluded that this is how religion must have begun. So this is one of the first answers to the question, how did this give you an evolutionary edge? How did we do this? And it's just imagining how confusing it must have been to not know anything about germs and the brain. And you have people dying, like just dropping dead and you have no idea why, like you have thoughts that feel good and thoughts that feel bad and you don't know why, and you have dreams. And then if you have psychedelics, you know, it just must've been very confusing to be an early human. And so, you know, that's, this is kind of the first theory that we just did it to, in order to make sense of the world. Yeah, no, no, that, that makes sense. Like the, it, it would be hard as an early human to kind of differentiate between the things that are happening inside you and the things that are happening outside you when the things that are happening inside look and feel and um, show up in ways that seem like they are the outside world. Yeah. So then for each of these theories, I'm going to do like a pushback too, because okay. there are like pros and cons to both. So the pushback, what is to this idea is how does that actually help? Because wouldn't made up stories actually decrease your evolutionary fitness? So like if you run headfirst into a bison because you don't fear, um, you don't fear death because you believe in this other world. Isn't that just as likely to kill you than it is to help you? Isn't it maybe more likely to kill you? And so maybe there's just not enough evidence here to support that. Um, you know, there's no emotion that's unique to re religion, not even transcendence. So there's no reason to conclude that religious feelings are uniquely beneficial to human survival. So the pushback here is how does that help you survive to make up things about the world that are not true? Because eventually the not trueness and the reality of the world are going to collide and you're going to die would be the pushback to that. Yeah. And um, I don't know that I have necessarily much to add to that other than I think the opposite is true too. It may, we humans perceive we have certain limits and the reality is we our limits are generally further beyond what we think they are. Mm -hmm. uh, there was the example of um, if you took a rat and you put them in water, they yes. would tread water for only a few minutes and then they would give up. But if you got them out of the water as they were going under, took them out, let them rest for a minute and then put them back yeah. in the tank. It was like 12 would, hours, right? A 40. Oh 40 yeah. Hours. Yeah. Like an amazing. Yeah. Right. Sh so sometimes shocking. Yeah. So a dream could show us that our limits are further and us then suddenly trust the dream and find out we could do way more. And if you did that, you would suddenly see the dream as giving you insight into your actual ability. And hence you would see trust dreams as being trustworthy. Mm. Does that make so sense? Maybe, yeah. So maybe because the world is so scary, anything that makes you feel like you understand the world, even if it's a made up story, gives you that little bit of confidence to like go yeah. out into the world rather than like how terrifying it must've been to be an early human. That's interesting. Yeah. If the dreams worked, they would have been like a crystal ball. You would have said like, right. oh, I should trust my dreams. They right. gave me insight into things I could do that I didn't think I could. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it could, yeah, there'll, there'll be pros and cons to each of these theories. Love it. So the next theory is that God is a social thing. So the theory that 
And these kind of go in order in how they came up in time. So the past really 200 years. So the next theory was like, dreams are not real. Spirits are not real. What's real is, you know, the concrete actions of a community bound together, working as one to survive in a hostile environment. That is the root of religion. So the idea is before a hunt, there'd be like a gathering in a circle and maybe the men to get together and do some kind of spiritual ritual. And little by little, something real, a hunt, becomes something kind of supernatural, something spiritual, where you're trying to tap into your intuitions, where you're really bound together to be successful on this hunt, right? And so it has real benefits by getting together and doing this. And so the idea here was that it didn't really matter what it was, doesn't matter, um, the fact that it's combining a society together, that's what makes God and religion such an evolutionary advantage. And so I sent you a picture and this picture, you've, you've seen this for a lot longer than I have. This completely like arrested me. This like stopped me in my day. So there's this picture of the source. It's called the sorcerer. And it's this cave painting from 13,000 years ago. And this is actually new to me, by the way. I'm, and there's other paintings new. that are in one of the links that uh, I have on my wall that I, I've known for a while. But this is actually the first time I've seen this one. Okay, so this one's new to you. So, you know, of course, scholars debate what this means. And in the book by Reza Aslan, he calls it what we may think of as the first kind of image of God, right? Um, and if that's not true, then maybe one of the, right? So it's called the sorcerer, but it's this kind of, um, I don't know, what would you call it, Bill? It has like an owl face and then it has like antlers and then it has like lion paws. Human and legs, it's got so like it looks a, like. Human legs. Um, you can see like a tail. You can also see like a penis. Yeah. And it's this great spirit or master of the animals. And so what arrested me, especially coming from Mormonism here, is that what they found in this cave is that there's certain rooms in this cave and there are these like dots in this pattern. And we know it's not random. We know it's a pattern, some kind of language, some kind of activity. We really don't know. Um, I would like give anything to know what the dots in this particular order meant in these rooms, but it's, it's a kind of, um, initiation or ceremony where you go into these rooms, there's certain things on the wall, something that you have to do. Some of these rooms you have to like crawl into, um, and then finally at the very end of this kind of ritual, you have this painting, this cave painting of some kind of God, a great spirit, master of the animals. And it's been etched in, you know, like thousands of times. You can tell it wasn't just painted or etched in once, like over and over it's been done. And so the reason this was like so shocking to me is here I am uh, 15,000 years later, and I'm a human who went through you know, a kind of ceremony where I went from room to room and I did different things. And at the last room, it was kind of like, I'm with God. And 15,000 years ago, some humans were literally doing the same thing in a cave. And this was the image of God that they had, which was this master of the animals. And it was just like this moment of like, man, I was doing the same thing that they were doing because there's just something about this kind of 
historical memory that we have of humans of doing these kinds of superstitious rituals that we that we go through and then we kind of have some kind of version of god at the end of it and then maybe they did it even with psychedelics too which would have been even more interesting where they maybe have a shaman or something like that so the argument in this theory is that it doesn't matter what the god was because that god is totally unrecognizable to me it's just like an owl antler deer god but um because it bounded the community together, it made them stronger as a community. So what do you think? Yeah. Um, folks can go and use conscious altering tools or dreams are another way to experience this, but your brain can tap into perspectives of the world that you wouldn't think of in your woken uh, sober state. And the things that you experience either under conscious altering tools or in a dream or in a deep state of meditation, for instance, those, those ideas would be unique to you. Even if someone else is using the same drug, they almost certainly are not having the same experience. Um, same with dreams, same with deep meditation. Yet, at some point, and we'll get into this maybe later as we, if we can plug in sapiens and the argument it makes, which is tied to this, but at some point, unique individual experiences are cast aside and what is valued in a community is the collective uh, imposed truth on them. Because individual experiences keep people choosing to be different than the rest of the tribe and what we need for humanity to survive in this tribe is for them to be as big as possible so they can thwart off smaller tribes and to collaborate as well as possible. And having a collective boundary on what is in the other, what is beyond death or what is in the other worlds um, takes precedent. And so you can certainly understand how uh, people leading a system will begin to create boundaries and lines about what is on the other side and impose on the tribe that it be a common story. And that common story does so many things to help a tribe perpetuate beyond just all of us believe the same. Right. Um, and, and so I think those things are important. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think here we have to kind of use like Occam's razor. Sometimes when I'm talking to critics, let's just use Christianity here, but when I'll use critics and we say, you know, something that is happening in Christianity has been happening for thousands of years. And they'll say something like, well, that just shows that it was all kind of building into Christianity or it was all it was all because this is the pattern of heaven or something like that for now. And it's like if we think about this critically, Occam's razor, this is a kind of temple ceremony with this God, with this ritual. Um, going room to room as a community that was being done 15,000 years ago. Yeah. Is that really because it was all of that time, all of that, all of those years, all of that suffering, the billions of people, it was all building up to this version of Christianity or this version of Mormonism, or maybe is there something more uh, fundamental going on in our brains of we just have a history of doing this for a hundred thousand years because we're communal social primates. Um, you know, which one really makes more sense? Yeah, we 
we have since the moment we we invented language we humans invented language and um from the from that moment forward we have created stories to try to make sense of the random and the unexplained hmm. okay so the pushback to this theory so the critics of this theory will say that the trouble with this line of reasoning is that there's nothing intrinsically unifying or cohesive about religion because religion has the power to bring people together but it's just as efficient about dividing people and it also benefits some people more than others so people who are very central to the religion and the rights um, will benefit more than some people who are more disconnected to the religion and so the argument of this uh, theory is that kinship or your family is actually a stronger bond than trying to get people to believe the same thing supernaturally because then you also get religious wars. And so religion, you know, it does have the power to bring together, but like the system we came from, does it bring families together on a, on the same, you know, belief system? Yes. But does it just as often divide a family apart? Yes. So maybe that's not the reason why, it's lasted this long. Yeah. And and then the pushback to your pushback. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is that just because one tool is better than another doesn't mean that humans wouldn't use both tools. Mm -hmm. Right? Like if we just try to collaborate with our family, the tribe that is made up of a larger community that creates myths that are for the collective community are going to come in and trounce the smaller tribe made up of just family. Mm. And so some sort of connection between the larger community that helps them collaborate is actually a deep beneficial tool. Yeah. And just because a family tool works better doesn't mean that a tribal tool wouldn't be used as well. Yeah, we'll get to that tool later. That's kind of in the in the category of trust, which comes a little bit later, which is what you're talking about there. So the next theory is comes from the psychologist. So now we're talking about Jung and Freud. And so the psychologists take on this question and say, you know what, this is all in our psyche. Uh, what's going on here is that the subconscious brain thinks it's a self. It can't imagine not being there. This is Jung, Carl Jung. So it uses religion to create concepts like a soul and that I'm going to live forever and I'm going to see grandma again. And it's creating this because the subconscious doesn't want to deal with the fact that grandma's not around anymore or whatever the thing is that it's afraid of. And so it's a projection of our fears. It's a projection of our anxieties. Freud, as always, like takes it to another level. He thought religion was just like a complete neurosis. He thought it came out of our need for a better father than the one that we had because everybody has daddy issues. He also thought it was because um, we wanted to make sense of the desire to have sex with your mother and sisters. He gets really crazy with the sex stuff. Anyway, I'm, I'm a little bit more convinced with the Jung stuff. Freud always has, you know, a penis involved. Yeah. But for both, it was about the subconscious desires and most importantly, our fears and then developing religion to give us what our subconscious needs. So it's there to soothe anxiety. And this is one that we definitely both come in contact with all the time, even now. So what mm. do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the hero's journey. 
this idea that there are these underlying collective consciousness things going on that stretch across time and space, stretch aco- across various geographies and heritages and uh, narratives that each of us grow up with. And so to say that, you know, this is just a natural outgrowth of being a human and us all thinking the way we think, I, I that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and when you get into these specifics of whether it's Freud's idea or, again, like you, I don't know that I want to hold any one person up and go, this guy's got the right thing. I think they're all hitting at something, which is that there's underlying ideas and themes that humans across time and space are constantly thinking about. Yeah, this one makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it's one I'll come back to at the end when I kind of talk about what I think, what stands out to me. But the pushback to this one is that the problem as far as why this has lasted, you know, at least 100,000 years we've been doing this kind of God stuff um, or been humans like we are now. Uh, The problem is that religion and God perpetuates just as much anxiety and guilt as it alleviates. And so you and the reason that some people say that this um, theory falls flat is because you and I now both probably experience less anxiety without God than we did before. So then why? Right. So then if you and I feel more less anxiety without God, then why um, would this have lasted and been an evolutionary advantage since it actually does cause a lot of anxiety and guilt? Which is a good argument, I think. Yeah. And then, so my pushback to that is that uh, as James Fowler uh, showed the data on, very few people get to those later stages of development. And for those in the earlier stages of development, when they leave behind a belief in God, they actually most people tend to get more negative, more depressed, more um, fear about death or the end of them and the end of their family or the end of whatever. So for you and I to go like, hey, we discarded religion, we feel so much better about it. And that's true. I think that's a truth that only seems to be available to a small portion of human beings. And um, so maybe in some ways, religion actually did calm things down for many, reduced fears for many. And so I think you're right. And maybe it's not exactly that way for everyone. Yeah, I do think we have to like acknowledge privilege here when you and I say that we experience less anxiety on this side. You and I also have been privileged enough, uh, you know, financially stable enough that you were able to go back and reread the book, that book this week, you know, not every person on the planet is literate and educated enough and has the time and has the privilege to say, I'm going to reread this book and think about God this week. You know, that's a very privileged place that you and I have been able to have that we have to admit. Yeah. And if we go back 200,000 years ago, how much different, and there are certain situations in today's world, but 200,000 years ago, we're, you, you know, we're sleeping on the jungle floor uh, with our tribe of 20 people, 25 people, 30 people, 50 people, whatever it is. And suddenly some, uh, some animal comes out of the woods and chews up, you know, two of us. And that constant fear every day of being, 
potential prey to have stories that say, hey, life doesn't end here. To have stories that say that, hey, your sister who got eaten by a lion last night isn't, uh, isn't gone. There may be completely different ways in which those stories would have affected us if we lived in that environment. Yeah, I do think, you know, if I couldn't have been a shaman, which I think whenever I thought about, you know, what role I would be in these early tribal communities, because I'm a history teacher, even as a kid, I was thinking about these things. And I always thought I would be like the storyteller, the shaman. Mm. That's my place. Because if I did not find that storytelling place in the tribe, if, if there was, weren't people protecting me, I would very, I'd be the very earliest to just, I'm just so dumb (laughs) in everything else, unless it's like a, you know, a story by the fire or a psychedelic experience, or let's think about this and whatever. If I can't do that in a tribe, man, just feed me to the wolves. I'm of no use any other way. (laughs) And if you push too hard against the tribe stories, maybe you're outside the tribe anyway. Right. And, and if you're outside the tribe, then you really you most are certainly dead. won't survive because yeah. the environment isn't conducive in, to in modern times. Anymore. When you leave your tribe, it feels like you're dying, but it's because back then you really were dead. Yeah, yeah. you were done. All right. So the next Good argument point. is a moral argument. I, to me, this one's the easiest to dispose of, but we'll still do it. So the moral argument that came up was that religions keep groups from stabbing each other. And, you know, just doing that easy move of, I want what you have, and so I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to take it. And so uh, the idea here is that Adam in his cave is less likely to pull off that move if he believes that the spirits of his ancestors are watching him. So religion compels him to act morally for the good of the group or risk punishment. So there's an argument there. When you are arguing, as I sometimes do, uh, with like in, I've done formal debates, um, in front of audiences, this will be still a common argument that religion gives us morality. And we just have so much research now that just shows that there's little evidence that the world's religion has any impact on our moral lives. Uh, it seems, and we're grateful that it is, it seems that most of us are born with a certain amount of morality and empathy and that religion doesn't do much to kind of teach us that or impose that on us. So um, the, you know, the push, the easy pushback here is that, yes, you may have a commandment saying like in the Bible, not to kill someone, but as soon as you have a God, you also have that God say things like, well, I command you to take over that city and kill everyone except for the women that you will bring back as slaves. So as soon as you make that move of having a God with commandments, yes, you may get some commandments about don't kill people, but then you also get a lot of things like, you know, God's telling us to do this and it's some really immoral thing. So the theory you know, from this book, from Reza and Paul Bloom, who has done just a huge amount of research. He, he podcasts with Sam Harris quite a bit, um, that there's just really no evidence to show that religious belief gave us a huge biological advantage directly, um, when it comes to morality. And so the experiment that Paul Bloom did that he kind of got famous for was this good Samaritan experience uh, or experiment. And so what he did is he had someone on the side of the road that obviously looked 
very disheveled and as if they were in need of help. And so um, they have people walk by and when someone, you know, stops and helps them, they, you know, give them a survey, you know, why did you do this and what are your beliefs? And so it was, and it was a really big experiment. And the conclusion was that um, believing or not believing in God had no impact on why people stopped. The, the real deciding factor was if people had time, regardless of the, if they believed in God or not, they stopped. And when they didn't have time, then they didn't. And that was really it. <laughs> How busy you were was the determining factor. And when asked why you did it, it was just, hey, I have a few minutes. It looked like that guy needed help. So I just asked, do you need some help? And that was like the big conclusion of the study. So that was interesting. So yeah, so there is a moral argument to me. It's not a very strong one just because religions, while they do have commandments that lead groups to try to act morally, they just as often have um, really sketchy things in their religious texts too. So yeah. Um, thoughts here. So first off, you're, you've mentioned Adam a few times, just to point out to the audience, Riza Aslan is not, when he uses those terms, he's not saying Adam and Eve, the actual biblical Adam and Eve. What he's saying is if we go back to the earliest humans and we call them Adam and Eve because religion is coming forth from them, what was it that was prompting them to create it? In terms of the moral argument, I think religious systems and their rules and boundaries do two things. Um, the first one is that without religious systems, I think we could all sit around a campfire 200,000 years ago and figure out rules that we don't cause any extra unnecessary harm or intentional harm to each other. When systems come in and give added boundaries and stories to those boundaries, I think it accomplishes two things. One is that it creates discrepancies in privilege. So for instance, the leaders of the system have a set of rules, right? They get, they get more access to the beautiful women. They get more access to the good food. They get more access to um, the resources that come into the tribe collectively. So I think it creates a privilege differential. The other thing that I, um, I, I think it does is that even if we're not causing each other uh, intentional harm or unnecessary harm, we humans are prone to objectify the people we care about and love. So the, my wife is my thing. Uh, my children are my thing. And I think what religion does is it came in and said, look, for instance, we talked about polyamory earlier, somebody, you know, a man, being in a relationship with five different women, as long as that's all consensual, there's no coercion, there's no unhealthy pressure to do that, everyone's choosing to be involved in that. There's not unnecessary harm or intentional harm being given out. But in a system of people, there are going to be moments where that practice bumps into each other more heavily, especially if we go back 200,000 years ago where everybody sat around a campfire and they all got their intimacy, sexuality needs, their touch, their um, their connection from everybody. You just you you know you you laid down next to that person tonight and you hugged them and cuddled them, and the next night you were laying next to that person and having sex with them. There, because of our human uh, our human propensity to objectify the people we care about. 
that would have caused a tribe to bump into each other. There would have been more uh, hurt and upsetness with each other as we as we did that. Religious systems come in and they try to reduce that. So there are rules that really have nothing to do with anybody doing something bad to someone else, but it tries to reduce the amount we bump into each other within a tribe so that that tribe will continue to collaborate and work together. And, and so when you see it from that point of view, it, it, it becomes not a moral argument like right or wrong, but it becomes like what helps us survive another decade working together with each other and not having Jim and Jerry be mad at each other because Betty's sleeping with both of them. Yeah, this is this is where I think it, it really reminds me of Confucianism because Confucianism is, you know, what happened in China during a, t a period of time was that was that the rules for society was Confucianism, which is this, this is the duty to this person. And this is your duty to this person. This is your duty to the state. This is your duty to the wife. This is the duty to your parents and kids. And it created kind of a system of rules to keep it all together, but there was nothing supernatural. And so there's this saying in China at the time that, you know, you were Confucianist by day, but you were Taoist by night, you know, people had their kind of personal religious things that they would do privately, but it kind of goes against this idea that religions and God were created to keep us moral because Confucianism was able to do that without any supernatural kind of demands, um, was able to create what you're talking about, which is how are we going to structure society and what are our duties to each other in order to do that? So to me, yeah, it's not the strongest argument in the bunch as far as why we created religion and God, but we certainly still see this argument a lot about um, perhaps it did something there in order to compel people to act morally for the good of the group. Yeah, love it. All right, so the next one is from a podcast you sent me. So I'm adding, so I added it to the list of um, trust. So this is bigger than just the, what we were talking before about um, kind of God as a social thing. Now we're talking about trust as kind of a bigger for bigger communities. So this, the, the argument here is that religions thrived because when you get societies too big, let's just say over 50, 150 people, you need something there to establish trust because the society is now too big to keep track of the reputations of all the new people. It's because beyond if you're in a kin. Yeah, it's beyond yeah. kin now. It's it's like, I don't know if I can trust you on this deal. You're not my uncle. I don't know you. I don't know your reputation. And so there's an argument here, and it's stronger than the one before. We have more evidence for this, that a punitive God specifically gives you reason for that trust. So the, the study example here is that they did a study during, um, I don't know actually what country it was in, but it was in a Muslim country during a call to prayer. And so what they did is um, in this study is during the call to prayer, they would ask for money for um, some poor kind of charity organization or whatever. And they found that people gave more money during a call to prayer, specifically when they believed that God was punitive, meaning that if you didn't do this thing, God will punish you because you are supposed to X, Y, Z. And so if you, for example, did the same study, but 
during that time of prayer, it was to one of these like liberal gods that just, I love you forever and I forgive you all things and blah, blah, blah. It actually didn't make people give more money because they knew even if they didn't, God would still love them. And even if it was wrong, God would forgive them and that kind of thing. So we do have scientific evidence that shows that a punitive God actually does for certain behaviors out of fear um, that could be beneficial to a society like giving money to the poor. And so the theory here is that societies could trust each other if they worship, if they worshiped, but more importantly, if they feared the same God, because I can now do a deal with you because I know if you break that deal, you believe in that God that's going to punish me, you. So I'm willing to trust you more. And that's how religions went from this tiny kind of supernatural, uh, just a spirit beast in the woods to like, you know, the God of Islam, Jehovah, you know, these really, really big gods that were at the beginning, at least very punitive gods. So that's, that's a very interesting theory. And one you sent me, what are your thoughts? Yeah. What I wrote here is, Religion's a human invention that allowed us to work in bigger groups. And, and again, it's the sapiens model that in small groups of, you know, two to 25, you can create enough intimacy and personal interaction that you just know the person next to you and you know really all the members of your tribe. Beyond 25, you don't have enough time to spend with everyone. So people begin to be a layer away. Like I kind of know them, but not exactly. And so now humans invent this thing called gossips. We invent language. We invent gossip. Gossip allows us to tell our neighbor about another person. So we know them, but our neighbor doesn't. We can now inform them about the good and bad that that other person does. And we can create some degree of knowing someone's skills, their flaws, their weaknesses, what, you know, whether they're a good hunter or the bad gatherer, we can convey that information. As you're pointing out, it gets to a point where at about 150, they say, and as you point out as well, it almost assuredly happens to some degree if it's not deeply intentional at as low of a number as 50. When you get to 150, you now need a common story so that when I'm on a military battlefield, I'm wearing the uniform of a U.S. Marine and the guy next to me, I don't know, but he's also wearing the uniform of a U.S. Marine. And I know where the good guys and the other guys across the way who have a different uniform are the bad guys. So I wrote, uh, it allowed us to work in bigger groups and to be trusted to a sufficient degree so as to collaborate. Religions create rules and boundaries, rituals, things you have to do. All of those are what's called costly signaling. We are signaling to the other members of our group that we are in the tribe, we're, we're rule followers, we stay in the boundaries. And, and therefore always, trustworthy. Yes. And yeah, and you can deal with me and you can trade apples with me because I'm going to come. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if anybody in the tribe didn't keep the rules of the religion, they would be uh, perceived as less trustworthy. They're not willing to show up at church every week. They're not, they're not uh, accepting a call. Like, we can come up with all the modern things that we do that say this, but in this moment, you know, again, 100,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago, if there was somebody who's like, man, that's just nonsense. And, and of course, believe it or not, humans had that thought 200,000 years ago too. Um, if it's nonsense and I don't participate, people can sense like he's not exactly one of us. And so you're signaling that you're not willing to pay the cost 
yeah. of being a member of this of these boundaries. Yeah. Um, let, let me just say one more thing real quick, which is mm-hmm. it, it also allowed us to forge ahead during times of trauma, believing better times were ahead, if even only after this life, right? So the ability to go above and beyond because you think you're going to live again or see your sister again or that God's going to reward you will likely give you some added strength. When I was a believer, I was more prone in my head to go like, Hey, if I got conscripted to the military or sent off to war, I'm just going to, I'm going to go and fight for my country and do all the things I'm supposed to do today. Having deconstructed all of that, I'm much less wanting to give up my life for some ideal. Right. And, and so I think a belief in a religious paradigm a hundred thousand years ago, even to this day would have prompted us to fight harder to devote more, to give it our all. And then I also said it made us better fighters, believing we were the good guys and God would help us win against the bad guys. If you believe in your God and you're a tribe of 50 going up against a tribe of 70, you might still put in your all to win rather than run um, because you think like maybe we can do this because our God's behind us. It may have given us the ability to go against the odds and accomplish big things and fight harder than the other guys if we had a story and they didn't. Yeah, this this is a really interesting argument because we the reason it's interesting to me is because we still see this today. You and I both have people in our lives who as soon as we began to show that we're not on the same page with this God thing, we were seen as dangerous and essentially, you know, that relationship ended or boundaries were put up or whatever. Um, as soon as you stop doing uh, those societal cues that I'm a safe person and you know, and you're right that those people always existed. And I think of someone like Socrates, who's looking around and he's like, I think we're making up these gods like Zeus is having sex with da 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 and the chariot in the sky. I, I think this is us guys. And then like, oh, you're teaching the kids that you're dangerous to the society and we're going to kill you now. So like that has always been there as far as if you're not on board with our story, um, it's really seen as something so dangerous. And it's sometimes hard for me to understand because you and I are both truth seekers. And so, um, you know, our brains just don't operate that way. And as far as like, I need to boundary myself against this person because they think differently. But for, for many people in my life, um, there was a loss of trust when I didn't believe in the same God that you did. And so that has to be a reason that religions existed because that literally happened in my life. People don't trust me as much because um, I may say something to their children or, you know, they may see my tattoo and think that that's okay and whatever the thing is. Um, So that definitely has to be a reason because it still exists today, that trust factor. Yeah, we are, we are all, if we're in any sort of system or still engaging the system, but as an outsider, there are so many signals we are giving that, that declare whether we are insider or outsider. Right. All right. So here is the new theory. This was totally new to me reading the book. So here is to the audience. Here is the, um, 
the kind of crux of the the first half of this book is this new theory of why religion and God exists because um, Reza Aslan was kind of unconvinced that any of these reasons, while we can see it, um, he really struggled with why would that be a better evolutionary adaptation than the truth, right? <clears throat> the reality of the situation or seeing the world a little bit more clearly and less superstitiously. And so his argument, um, which I'm still just kind of tossing around in my brain, his argument is that religion is the accidental byproduct of another evolutionary adaptation. So it's more of an accident. It's a, it's a bug in the system and not a feature. And so what he refers to as kind of the core evolutionary adaptation, which religion is just kind of attached to, is this cognitive theory called HADD, which is hypersensitive agency detection device. And what it is, is that we have a tendency. Um, and as I was reading this, it happened to me, which is so funny. Um, we have a tendency to detect humans, human agency, and human causes behind events. So literally, as I was reading this, I was at the water park with my son um, and he was off. And so I was reading and something kind of floated on my arm and I thought it was him touching me and it was just my towel. But my instant thought was my son's back, that's his arm and he's touching me. And it it was just like this moment of I'm reading about this and it just happened where we we instantly think did I see something? Is someone in my, is that noise? Was it someone in my house? We instantly always think it's another human. That thing was human caused. We're just really keyed in to other humans. And so the idea is that because our brains are tuned to anticipate other human actions, because we're really just these um, deeply social primates, belief in God is just a byproduct of that. So when there's a storm, maybe we relate to the emotion of it. God must be angry because this looks like anger. This looks like a feeling that I have that's anger. So God must be mad. Or Eve sees uh, in the woods, you know, at the corner of her eye, it looks like a human face. But when she looks at it, it's a tree. This happens to humans all the time. We expect a human to be there. Oh, it was just, it was, it kind of looked like a face in the tree. And so the theory, his theory is that Eve you know, if the tree has a face, it also must have like a soul or a self like I do. It must have agency and intention. And the tree kind of gets this kind of spirit. And then the tree transforms into a kind of totem. And then maybe one day she's going by the tree and she has a thought that something's bad's going to happen that day and something bad does happen that day. Well, now it's like a fortune telling tree and it wants offerings. And so the argument is that religion was born by accident from this neurological phenomenon that we um, expect all things to be kind of human related. And when we can't explain it, that thing is kind of God thoughts yeah. before yeah. I go on. So, no. So there's a, there's a lower stage of this. It's, it's not just that we are prone to see human where there isn't. We're prone to see threats where they're not our default position is to sense that something is a threat to us rather than something innocent. So for instance, 200,000 years ago, we're on the jungle floor at night and suddenly there's a noise and it came from the wind blowing and a branch moved or swayed in the wind. 
if I guess that it's a branch when it's really a lion, I'm going to lose. If I guess it's a lion when it's a branch, nobody's going to get hurt. My heart rate's going to increase for a moment, but eventually I'm going to calm down, go back to sleep and realize that's not what it was. So over hundreds of thousands of years of evolution, our brain has been taught to perceive another human, a, a threat of an animal, uh, some living thing that either is going to help or hurt us rather than inanimate objects or uh, innocent pieces of nature that can't do any harm. And over and over and over again, any human whose brain was deciding the other direction would have been killed. And any person that was uh, had their default position to sense a threat or to humanize something um, would have had some, you know, again, humanize the part I should leave out. But if they would have perceived a threat rather than a swaying branch, no matter how many times they're wrong, they would have been more prone to survive over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, event after event after event. So when, when things like that come up and are uh, created by some tribe of humans, that makes perfect sense to me. And so as you're pointing out, the other layer of that is that we see, we, we humans have been attributing human characteristics to animals and inanimate objects forever. It comes very natural to us. It's part of, it's part of who we've evolved to be. And it all plays into the very things you're talking about. Yeah, so the argument is that religious impulse lies in the brain and it's not a direct evolutionary advantage, although there are some. It's a byproduct of the real evolutionary advantage, which is relating everything as human or human behavior or related to humans or we're just very human centric in how we see the world. So two examples I have. One is that if you give a small child a car, they'll kind of on their own without ever teaching them this, they'll kind of think like the headlights are the eyes, like in the movies, cars mm. and the grill is the mouse, the mouth. And they'll play with them as if like the car wants to do this, the car is mad and it's going to crash you. We put human things onto the world because we just kind of have this natural um, evolutionary wiring that everything's kind of either human or related to human or like me um, or, you know, affecting uh, related to human behavior in some way. And so some people may think, well, that is just superstition from a long time ago. Here is like the big thing that just still shocks me. You and I are old enough to have been alive when half of America believed that AIDS was caused by God being angry at homosexuals. Yeah. That is like to the T, like when we're talking about superstitious human behavior, where we're seeing something going on and we think, well, God must be mad at them because they're doing this. God hates Michael or uh, God must, Johnson, right? God must hate them. Yeah. We think that this only happens in like superstitious tribes in Africa or like, you know, 200,000 years ago in our lifetime, millions of Americans, half, it was 45%. So almost half of Americans believed that AIDS was caused because God was mad at homosexuals and sent this plague to kill them. 
and this is in modern times. And this is a perfect example of humans seeing something that's going on and thinking, well, if they're all dying, there must be some human-like thing like me that's mad at them and taking it out on them because we just kind of see the world in this kind of human behavior way, right? Yeah. And um, I want to be careful here. I hope I word this right. The storming of the Capitol that happened uh, recently, not super recent, but, you know, whatever it was, eight months ago or something, nine months ago, um, you can tell by that event that folks who have a religious underpinning of a punitive God have uh, a stronger propensity to go further in trying to right the ship than the rest of us who perhaps are more, um, we're more uh, willing to go through the slower processes and work things out in a, uh, a softer way to try to edge towards fixing something or correcting something. Having a religious belief about a punitive God can be shown throughout history to cause people to go be beyond what others would do to get the changes that they want to see happen. Yeah. I mean, we see this, I mean, we're talking about religion specifically, but um, obviously when we're talking about religion or, or superstition or um, just, you know, any of this kind of human behavior, we can see this in politics. Some people's religion is their politics. Um, and we certainly see, we certainly see some of these aspects as, you know, when it was Black Lives Matter, there was kind of that trust instinct of if you were Black Lives Matter, I wanted to do business with you or I trusted you more than if you said Blue Lives Matter. You know, like yeah, we still have, yeah. it's not a religion, but we still Which have a lot on? of these. Yeah. yeah, it's a team thing. You know, we yeah. still do that. So the last question I have is like, why do I care? Why do I care so much about this? I'm in the hospital with my daughter when she's asleep. I'm thinking about this. Why do I care? about any of this. And the reason here's like the clincher for me, if it's possible that religion is just a byproduct of evolution rather than kind of a requirement by evolution, it's something that we can override. And the reason that I want it to override is this. I had hundreds of people praying to God to spare my child. When in reality, there was a team of nurses who cared for her, doctors, MRI machines, hundreds of tubes, it felt like maybe just like five um, people who grocery shopped for me and cleaned my house and brought meals, real heroes, right? Who saved my daughter's life and brought her home. And how silly it of me, silly would it be of me to thank God when so many humans alive and dead, like some of the humans who helped me was whoever the person was who invented a feeding tube because she would have died a hundred years ago if she hadn't have had a feeding tube. She wasn't conscious for too long. And so these people in my life who just like, Oh God is so good to you. Thank God. There were so many human, actual people, human lives living and dead who made it. So my daughter lived and didn't die. And if I spend my time making my offering to my supernatural tree or the God or the spirit or the universe or the good vibes, it takes away from me taking the time to thank the humans who actually made it possible for my daughter to live. And so that's what I've really been 
learning and thinking about this month that the reason that I want to override religion is not because I want to be a downer and take everybody's security blanket, which some people think I want to do. It's really because I want to override this to focus on humans, to focus on the people that saved my daughter's life. And if I just say, thank God, will I really go in and write the thank you cards and do the things to thank them versus thanking God. So that was really what was kind of weighing on me. So we went through six theories overall, kind of what stands out for you, Bill, as far as today, why does religion still exist? There were, you know, six good reasons that we went over, which one to you really stands out? Yeah. I, I think I'm going to take a different answer, which is I kind of see merit. I see merit in maybe almost all of them, if not all of them. Yeah. And I don't think it I don't think religion needs to come via one cause. Again, the attempt to create myth stories to explain random events and and to heal from random trauma, which I want to speak to here in a second too. Um we humans have done that like literally what how many religions are there in the world today? Let's say there's there's 4,000 gods to choose from as far as to worship. And and how many breakoffs within each one of those gods? Yeah, I don't right? I don't know that number. I know there's four thousand so, gods, and I know ten thousand gods have already died, meaning they were worshipped yeah. and are no longer being worshipped, including the one we had on the screen earlier, right? So right. there are so many variations that we and and we don't even know the majority of these, right? Like they've they've come and gone, and they're they're not there. And there have been so many variations of each one as people adapted. And so humans have been trying to create these kinds of stories that connected their tribe together to the point where there may be lots of different reasons for why these things happened at any given intersection in time and space, right? And so I really feel comfortable going like, I feel like all of these have some merit. Uh, I think all of these may be factors one way or another that played into how we created various uh gods or religious systems that hold those gods up and i don't feel like i need to pick one and go like that that's the one that happened i I think these all play a role yeah so i have two i have two things to say here so um yeah so for me when i think about which one really when we're talking about modern times where we have better explanations for the world, than you know, the chariot takes the sun across the sky, things like that. Why do we still have this tendency? The one, if I were to choose one, although I agree with you that there are certain factors and different time periods where one may have helped more than another. um, The one that stands out for me is a fear of meaninglessness. And I say that because I listened to, any debate I can find on YouTube where religious and secular people are debating because debates are just a great place to like, let's see how that argument holds up under fire. Right. You can really see that. I love listening to, you know, Christopher Hitchens and um, just any debate I can get my hands on. And I see in some of these debates, people like, let's say Francis Collins. So Francis Collins is uh, the founder of the Human Genome Project, scientist. If you asked him to write the story of humanity with only evolution, he has 
enough knowledge to do that more knowledge than me. Okay. Like he, a, a for real scientist and he's walking, this is the story this is a true story. So he's walking, um, on a hike to a waterfall and he sees a waterfall that splits. It's like one waterfall, but it splits into three. So it's like one waterfall, but like three heads. And in this moment, he says that was enough for, and you know, he's thinking about deep questions and things like that. And that just that waterfall in one and three was enough for him to believe that, you know, in, in the Trinity, essentially. So here's a man who knows everything that we just said, knows a ton about evolution, who still chooses to believe in the Trinity. And he really goes back to this experience where he saw a waterfall that was kind of cut into three things. And when I really look at like something like that, where you have enough information to be able to say humans are social primates, we don't know how life you know, we don't know why there's something rather than nothing, but at least we can kind of trace out our history and what we are. And it seems like when we die, um, there's no second act. And he, he knows all of this and he chooses to believe in God and in, in a specific God and worships God and um, is a voice for Christianity and science and things like that. And so when I really dig into that, for me, I see what makes religion last and, and, this is just my, just in talking with people and thinking about this, I really see a fear of meaninglessness at the root of even people who really deeply understand evolution, that they make this move that I would rather believe in God and eternal justice and that I'm going to see grandma again than, than have to live in a world where really nothing that I do will matter in a in three or four generations, everything that we do will be meaningless and forgotten and no one will remember us. And rather than having to sit and actually face that and get to the other side of that, which you and I have both done, which is hard and a lot of tears, a lot of dark nights of the soul, rather than do that, just kind of hold on to the idea of God because the fear of it is just so existentially terrifying. And I really mm -hmm. see that as such at the root of like these really smart people in these debates, I really see a fear of meaninglessness at the root of it, that it's just, they would just rather live in a world where they believe that there's a God who's watching everything and going to make things right. You know, this Roe versus Wade thing happened and I, I've probably said this in the podcast before, but I come back to it. Um, when you look at the argument, if, if you take God completely out of the picture, and you just weigh the pros and cons as if God doesn't exist. It's a very different view than if you say there's God and, you know, this is what he thinks. And so hence I have to go this direction. And you realize like what a belief in God, it can dynamically change how you approach the world. There, there are a few things that I thought of that are kind of tangents to what we talked about today. And I want to get a few of these in. Um, the earliest evidence for the treatment of the dead uh, came from Ada Puerca. I don't know if that's right, in Spain. Uh, at this location, the bones of 30 individuals believed to be Homo heidelbergensis have been found in a pit. Neanderthals are also contenders for the first hominids to intentionally bury the, bed, bury the dead. But we know that even as far back as 100,000 years ago, something that was 
sort of human, our ancestors from that long ago, buried their dead with supplies for the next life. So we know that there's some sort of religious belief that's associated with that. So when we think like in our modern religious systems of say Mormonism or Christianity, there are these orthodox fundamentalist positions that the earth is 6,000 years old and you know that, that humans have been on it for that long at least. And the reality is we can go back 100,000 years ago and we can find uh, ancestors of humans burying their dead in preparation for a, a afterlife, which I think is interesting. Um, a religious community, I was talking about this earlier, a religious community could attribute to God, you know, these are God's rules, boundaries that make any behavior that damages trust, diminishes collaboration, hurts relationships, and puts the community at risk. Um, they could make those taboo and essentially allow the community to collaborate better. Um, I noted before that, um, and this was this I got from Yuval Harari and Sapiens, that we went from just intimacy to what most primates do is grooming. They pick bugs out of each other's hair and clean each other up. And every day the other primates will spend time with each other being groomed and grooming. And that's how they build their connection once the tribe is a little bigger than what can just be had by just simple intimacy. But we eventually, as humans, we invented language. So we went to gossip, which worked better, and then to myth, which works even better in terms of size. Each adaptation increasing the number of people who could work together and collaborate. And so if we go back 100,000 years, tribes of 400 were going to slaughter tribes of 25 every single time. So those tribes would all die off that way of living would disappear and the way that would be um, would perpetuate would always be the mechanisms that allow the biggest tribe to survive. And religious myth is as powerful as any myth in helping that to happen. Um, we just had a book club meeting last night. We do a book club here where once a month we get together and read some taboo kind of book. And uh, the one we did this time was Oprah Winfrey and Bruce Perry what happened to you? It's a book about trauma. And there's a part in the book where Bruce notes um, what it takes to heal from trauma. He named four things. He said, one, connection to clan in the natural world. Two, regulating rhythm with drumming, dance, and song. Um, I'm going to get these last two out of order because I think that way we set up number four. But number three, using conscious altering tools with a shaman which also is kind of a layer away from religion, right? There's a there's a certain sort of religious kind of aspect to that. And then number four, a set of beliefs, values, and stories to make sense of random trauma. Um, and, and I find that so interesting, like for us humans to be able to get past trauma, to process it, to be able to continue to lead some sort of healthy, productive life, we need myth stories to make sense of the random trauma that happens to us. Um, I thought that was really interesting as well. And then one last thought. Um, most religion attempts to acknowledge that what we can strip God down to at the very minimum is that uh, whatever God is, it is uh, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-power, and omnipresent everywhere. 
And the very first humans trying to make sense of the world, you and I can grasp that the creative energy of the universe, 13.2 billion years ago, the Big Bang happens. And we all, you know, everything that is flows from that. That creative energy, when understood that way, is all present, all powerful, all knowing. And those tend to be kind of the bare bones minimum that we attribute to God. I'm simply saying that humans seem to have understood from the beginning something, that interconnectedness, that 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 everything flowed out from, and we he- are here today. And it's interesting that religions today still try to kind of grasp onto those three ideas and add a lot more fluff onto it. And, and for the folks who are listening today, maybe you can start to strip away some of that fluff and get back to that idea of all present, all powerful, all knowing and stop attributing human features to it. Stop attributing some sort of definitive lines and boundaries to it and just recognize it at that very minimalistic sort of perspective. Mm. So, and yeah, interesting closing thoughts. So my closing thoughts would be that as I look at all the things that you've mentioned, I can see, you know, how, how we create God and religion and, then when I look at today, I think, um, you know, most people, if you asked, are there people who are good who don't believe in God? Yeah, I know someone who's good who doesn't believe in God. You know, if we can, um, uh, even things like rituals people can do, rituals, or we have certain cultures that are starting to do some of these things without religion. And so when I really dive deep for me personally, when I'm really trying to understand why people will still have an experience like I had and forget all the humans and just thank God, um, why that still happens today for me at the root of that is still that fear of death and fear of meaninglessness. Um, and I see that in the early humans when when they're buried, you know, 100,000 years ago with their favorite things, which logically should go back to the tribe, but they bury them with the person. There's some sentimentality there. I almost feel this feeling like, like they're looking at this person who unexplicably died and um, they know that that could be me tomorrow. And it's such a harrowing thought because I, I, I'm i in a lot of Facebook groups. I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook directly, but I have a few Facebook groups where I'm open enough to be able to debate. And I'll ask people, you know, why do you still believe in God? Uh, you know, even though you've had maybe a faith deconstruction. And I get a lot of people who still say it's just easier to go through life. Um it's easier to believe in goodness. It's easier to believe that good things are coming. It's easier to do whatever it's easier to do. If I still believe in God and religion. And if I lose that, it would just be really hard. It would be really hard to face life. And so what that makes me want to do is to the audience, we have, we've had 50 of you listen live, which is so great that you've stayed with us and had a lively conversation in the background. And for the people who are going to listen to this, I just think that anyone who takes on these questions are the brave of the brave. You know, we talk about soldiers who are brave. We talk about firefighters who are brave, but to me, the bravest people that I've ever met are the ones who face death and meaninglessness and isolation and all of the kind of deep human existential fears 
because when I see things like the pyramids or I see these like huge tombs that men have made, I, what I see is these small men who had a lot of fear that they were going to die or that their life was meaningless. And the people who are listening, the people in our audience who are trying to live a good life with eyes wide open, that there may not be a second act. I may be a social primate, just, just a form of evolution. How do I still live a good life? How do I still have a spiritual life? How do I still live a life of meaning? And who are wrestling with those questions? To me, y'all who are listening, you guys are the bravest, bravest humans because such a few percentage of humans are brave enough to face life eyes wide open and ask those kinds of questions. Most people would rather construct some kind of God that makes it a little bit easier to, um, you know, believe that there's good in the world because they believe that God is good or whatever the thing is. And so just, just, I'm just so grateful for, you know, this audience who's listening because, you know, you and I would have these conversations just because we love it, but I'm, I'm so blessed in this this half of life to find people who are brave enough to ask these questions because facing these big fears, especially meaninglessness and death, I see so few people do. And so just, I just think y'all are really brave because I know it's, it's scary stuff and most people don't really um, have the courage to face it. So I think there's a certain amount of bravery in the kind of path, the spiritual path that you and I are talking about, which is, facing some of these sometimes hard truths head on. It, it is, as we talked about today, the, the idea of creating, um, creating God or creating the voice of God. And that plays out in all of these religious systems that have from 200,000 years ago to this very moment, it, it has all been an effort to help us make sense of the world. Because random things do happen and some of those random things hurt us, there is random trauma and there are random events that seem incredible. Lightning in the sky. I can only imagine when language is first invented by humans, the stories they would have just given to rain and lightning and the sun coming up every day. Um, we've tried so hard to explain everything. I Religion is quite interesting from, um, from that perspective. And we ought to not reduce it to, to useless when for hundreds of thousands of years, it served a purpose to the extent where even just I shared, shared earlier, having myth stories that explain the random is one of the ways in which humans process trauma. Um, we ought to take all that seriously. Um, anyway, I thank you, Britt. That, that, great conversation and, and like you said the folks in the comments uh, playing along here it, it was quite a conversation yeah just this last comment here just spoke to me that that it can be hard to share some of these thoughts with other people the conversation that we just had i wouldn't be able to have with a lot of people in my life um as as this person you know tried to do with their family for some people if you don't um have an ability to make sense of it and have these kinds of conversations. You just get this overwhelming feeling of nihilism. And it's very hard to move from if you're in a religious system where you are the center of the universe and you're saved for the last days and you're born in the best country and God loves you the most. And you're just, you know, 
you're going to live forever and everything you do matters. And then all of a sudden you're getting some truths from, you know, science that says maybe we're just, you know, social primates and maybe we're just uh, here because of evolution and maybe we don't have free will and maybe we don't have a self. And, you know, these are really hard. That is a really hard pendulum shift. And if you are going through that right now, um, that is, it's a really, really hard shift to do. And so that's why conversations like this and good people can help you kind of get through that because Bill and I both can say when you get through kind of having to make that shift, there is still a beauty in facing life eyes wide open. There's a beauty and there's kind of a courage to that kind of life um, that few people take on. And so if you're one of those people, you know, my hat goes off to you because uh, not everyone has decided to take that path. Yeah. And I'll just know, you know, you saw it. We had 53, 54, 55 people in here watching live. I think that's the most we've had for one of our shows. Um, folks, if you're listening to this podcast, it first off, share it. Um, put these episodes on Facebook or some other facet of social media. Uh, send them to your friends and family and say, hey, there are some really interesting conversations happening in this podcast. Um, we would be honored if you're enjoying this to share this with somebody so that we can try to grow this audience and other folks have access to the conversations that we're having. And not Number just one. that, but you may find someone, I don't know how many times, you know, I posted something and I didn't know a friend was thinking about that thing too. And all of a sudden we're having a lunch date and we can talk about it because, you know, like, like the listener mentioned, not, you can't have these conversations with some people because of certain boundaries and triggers. And some people just are not in a place where they can handle this kind of conversation. Um, but by sharing, but by sharing it to people that, you know, you hope we'll be able to, to maybe listen to the podcast. Hopefully you can open up some of these conversations and find people in your life who are willing to have these conversations with, because there were times where I felt like only me and other dead and dead philosophers were thinking about these existential questions, which is so wrong. There were so many people who were thinking about these deep questions about life, but, um, you know, it's not super socially acceptable to just say like, hey, I'm really going through an existential crisis and thinking about nihilism. How are you doing? <laughs> it should be, but it's not. Um, so yeah, share the podcast. And please, if you haven't supported pod the podcast before, please, please support the podcast so that Bill and I can keep creating content to have these conversations so that you can make sense um, of this kind of journey, which, which is a rare and, and beautiful and brave kind of human journey to take, which is trying to go through life and live a good life, a meaningful life with eyes wide open. Yeah, no nonsense. That, go, yeah, yeah. To do that, go to almostawaken.org, click the donate button, send us a few bucks. We really love recurring donations. If you could do three bucks a month or five bucks a month, it just means uh, a bunch. And uh, we appreciate each and every one of you that tune in. And like you said, Britt, these are conversations we're going to have anyway. Um, but to sit down and record them and try to create um, a space where these conversations are happening continually, uh, I think is beneficial. And so folks, if you like what you see, uh, help us out, help us spread the word and um, help us raise enough money that Britt and I can do this for years to come. And Britt, as always, amazing and uh, thankful for the conversation that we had. Total pleasure. This is definitely a part of my spiritual life is to have conversations like this. So yeah. this has been church for me. And cool. thank you for all of our listeners. Um, I'm just so glad to hear that other people are, are interested in having conversations like this because this is the good stuff for me. Yeah. 
audience is growing. I love to see it. Good job, right. Brent. Thanks, everyone. Take it easy. Bye. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.